following program is pre-recorded. Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway on the Hugh Hewitt Show. I'm joined by the president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arn. And one of his colleagues there, Professor Patrick Timmis, who's a visiting assistant professor of English and is doing admirable work, yeoman's work, perfectly appropriate to the subject, filling in for Stephen Smith as we talk about Shakespeare. Uh, professor Timmis, I have learned through back channels that you have connections with Westminster School of Theology, with which I am also connected. I didn't know that until you appeared on the radio show and my spies in Philadelphia filled me in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. My dad's uh, my dad's been working there for three or four years now. I think it's a great institution. So that is a uh, a wonderful recommendation to you that you have a parent employed. Don't you agree, Doctor Arn? If you find out about the parents, you'll know about the son. Uh, mostly. I like Patrick's dad, but I don't know about Patrick. <laughs> well, that's pretty much. It's at least an entree to get in. All right, here's the deal, gentlemen. Last week we began Shakespeare. And I have been in correspondence with the uh, missing in action Stephen Smith, the aforementioned Stephen Smith, who has agreed to return to the list after Thanksgiving. Now, I want the audience to know, all day Thursday and Friday, you get Hillsdale Dialogues on the Hugh Hewitt Show next week. We celebrate Thanksgiving on the air with three hours of Dr. Arn and me talking about the founding and the founding documents and the Declaration. And the day after, we talk with three hours with uh, Kyle Mernon, Wilfred, and Arn about the, uh, the great American story. So it's like six hours of Hillsdale Dialogues on the Thanksgiving holiday and the Friday after. Dr. Arn, what will they walk away from if they listen to those six hours? Thankfulness. Ah, they're right. As is appropriate to the day and the week, correct? That's right. So with with Stephen Smith, though, I said I'm beginning with King John, a play I have never read nor seen performed with Patrick, and he's happy with that. And, Patrick, what I've got to ask you about, Professor Timmis, is why doesn't anyone perform? It hadn't been on Broadway since 1915. I went and looked it up. Mm -hmm. What's going on there? Why don't we like John? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, most of Shakespeare's history plays are underperformed, I think, with the exception of uh, Henry IV, Parts One and Two, and Henry V. Uh, John is it's in the earlier part of his career, and it's a strange play because it doesn't give us a hero. Uh, it gives us a lot of flawed people. It gives us a couple of uh, straight-up villains. And it gives us some sympathetic victims. Um, but if you're looking for someone to root for throughout the play, it can be a little bit difficult uh, you know, to find somebody. Uh, uh, Dr. Arndt, have you ever seen it performed? As a matter of fact, I have. Where, where did you see it? Uh, in 2000, in the, yeah, early, right after I came here, uh, my children who had grown up in Southern California missed traffic. And so we went huh. to... Uh, to Chicago for a weekend, and we had a magical weekend. It was one of the greatest family vacations ever. We went to the Art Institute, uh, where we watched, where uh, we saw a display of Rembrandt paintings, and they were very w- well contrived uh, because they'd show R- Rembrandt did sketches, and then they became later uh, adapted many times into elements in his great oil paintings. So you saw that, and it ended with a quote, and it said, um, 
There will be an artist of the word as great as 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 the great Rembrandt, William Shakespeare. Oh, so that night we went to see King John, mm. and it was it is a great play. It's a wonderful play. Yeah, it is. And and the the hero in the play is England, which is mm-hmm. shown to be beset for the first time, which is. The story through, are there 11 history plays, I think, Patrick? Yeah, 10 or 11, depending on how one counts. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I usually bring 11 in right after 10. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and You know, Patrick, no one gets out of these hours without a couple of scars. Yeah, it's just, it's, <laughs> that's what you know. If you're gonna fence, if you're if you're gonna fence, you're gonna get sliced. It's that simple. <laughs> he wasn't even fencing. Patrick is innocent. Why am I doing this? It's bear bear baiting. It's bear baiting. It's not fair. uh, uh, So uh, here's the problem. The problem is England is an island and uh, Great Britain, right? And it needs to be united to be itself. And the thing about it is that if it is united, it is impregnable. And in the beginning of, of uh, the English-speaking peoples, Winston Churchill describes why England became the first free government. And it is because they, they, they didn't need a big army. They needed a big navy. And the navy is not good for oppressing people at home. And all the continental powers had to have dominant armies. And they were always allied to the king, right? And so England's English history... Uh, unfolds around that. And, of course, it became the greatest nation on earth, and it did marvels for freedom for, you know, 400 years. Um, even the empire I defend as a great, the, the greatest of the empires. Uh, so, and, and, you know, aiming towards self-government from an early day, which eventually they got. So what are the dangers to it? There are two, and one is division in the island. England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland. Uh, are those going to be united? And the other is uh, uh, continental powers, which, you know, there are many instances in British history where there are French and Spanish troops in Scotland and in Ireland uh, looking to come across the border. And then another thing is the Pope, the Pope. Uh, because the Pope at that time, uh, this was, by the way, explicitly eschewed by John Paul II, who's got to be one of the greatest of all the Christian prelates in history. Uh, as uh, The Church of Rome was a ruling thing. It flirted with that, and that raises an enormous problem, because... Uh, if you just look at Judaism, Judaism is God giving a ruler to a certain people, just one people. He gives a creation and a structure and a, and a mission to the, all of mankind, but the poor chosen people who have hard duty carry that for all mankind. And that doesn't disrupt entirely 
the arrangement of the of the ancient city where legitimacy comes from inside the regime and that means it can be disciplined by forces in the regime whereas if title to rule comes from god directly well just look at how iran is ruled today uh that's a that's a country with a large professional class who've been groaning under tyranny since jimmy carter years and and they don't have any say about that except they better keep their head down so the point is uh these co- these these external forces uh unite and divide with each other and with the papacy and and england finally finds its solution to the to and i'm just talking about the political problem of the of the uh of of the of a christian state ruling in the name of Christ, which Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world. And as I repeat, I'm, I myself am a Catholic fellow traveler, and I know that Hugh is actually one of those. And, and, uh, and the Catholic Church is a great thing, and as, as, as it is reformed, it's a very great thing. But in this great. era, it was attempting to control. And in fact, I built, is this the only play... I'll ask Patrick this: In which a pope plays a major role like this? Yeah, I think only only one of Shakespeare's plays. Although you have a number of his contemporaries writing uh, plays that are even more uh, directly anti-papal. So we have one minute to the break. This is the only Shakespeare play. It's the first history play, and the Pope's a bad guy in this play. And do we adduce anything about Shakespeare from that, Professor? I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I think that the the question of whether Shakespeare is secretly Catholic or actually anti-Catholic is a little bit of a, a blind alley. I think this, these are the sources he's working in, uh, you know, and, and the culture that he's working in. When we come back, I'm going to have Patrick give us a synopsis of, of King John, and then we're going to talk about what it means for England, because Dr. Arne just set up the problem of an island nation with overarching enemies abroad, one of whom is spiritual, many of whom are temporal, and what that means for King John, who they all think is a bad guy. Stick around. The history plays. Shakespeare, all on the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale, hillsdale.edu. There may be only one or two people in the Beltway who can actually tell the truth. You're listening to one of them. The truth continues when Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Welcome back, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at hughforhillsdale.com or just simply put in Hillsdale Dialogues in iTunes and you will find 414 Hillsdale Dialogues. This is the first time we've talked in 10 years about King John, the first of the history plays by William Shakespeare. And our guest, Patrick Tim, is professor of uh, English at Hillsdale and and Dr. Ron, president of Hillsdale College, are setting this up for us. uh, And we're going to launch after Thanksgiving, after six six hours of Hillsdale dialogue next Thanksgiving and Friday, a week from today. Uh, We'll be talking back the following week in the in the history plays. uh, Professor Timmis, give us, if you would, a synopsis of John. And I assume most people listening may have watched The Lion in Winter, 
So they may know about Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine and the Three Bad Boys, but they won't know about the Bastard Son, and they won't know about anything in King John. Yeah, so so John is the uh, younger brother of Richard the Lionheart, right? He's, he's the villain of Robin Hood. Um, and, uh, but after Richard's death, comes to the throne and uh, is supported by the Queen Mother, Eleanor. Um, Philip, the King of France, brings forward a nephew of, uh, of John, Arthur, and, and, makes, and argues that, in fact, Arthur, young Arthur, who's you know, maybe in his early teens, is the true king of England. And there's an argument there, but it's, it's not a, uh, you know, a knockdown argument. It's, it, it is debatable. Um, and so John insists that actually he rules both by strong possession and by right, though as the Queen Mother will uh, you know, reply to him, more by strong possession than right. You know, right, right is always a little bit in the eyes of the beholder, uh, I think, in Shakespeare's plays about um, when, when it comes to who actually owns, you know, who, who actually draws uh, you know, the direct line to, uh, to the throne. You always have multiple... Uh, contestants with with fair arguments. At any rate, um, John goes to war against Philip, and to avoid uh, a bloody battle, a compromise is worked out in which uh, John's niece Blanche will marry the the French Dolphin, uh, the, the the Prince um, Louis, and uh, take with her as her dowry uh, multiple English cities. This means, of course, cutting out Arthur. And in order uh, to keep this from being a complete travesty, what John uh, suggests is that he'll keep the crown, but he'll give Arthur both an earldom and a dukedom, so make him one of the great nobles of the kingdom, and this is all without you know, a blow being struck. And there, there's a sense here, I think, that this is, uh, it's not justice per se, uh, but it's pragmatic, and no one's completely happy, but maybe no one's miserable either, uh, and everybody can go home without bloodshed. Arthur's mother is not going to be content with this. Uh, she, he, although Arthur uh, says that he is, he asks her, be, please be content with... Arthur's mother is John's sister-in-law, right? This is right, yes. Yeah. And, and she... Uh, and, and although Arthur says, you know, mother, be content with this, uh, and, and the other nobles call for peace, she responds, war, war, no peace. Peace is to me a war. And her justification for this is her love for her son. But, it, but she keeps pushing, and then Pandolf, the papal envoy, shows up, and they, they've just celebrated this marriage. You know, the play can pretty much end here, right, as a comedy. Um, you know, one of one of Shakespeare's problem comedies where there isn't complete justice, but but at least there's something, some kind of harmony. Um, but Pandolf comes and uh, arrives and supports Constance in calling for war, because we just now learn John has been opposing um, the Pope, uh, the Pope's candidate for Archbishop of Canterbury, who is the you know the bishop of the whole island of England, or the, or the, the primary bishop, and, and it's primarily about money. John says, you're, you're sending uh, this guy here, 
so that you can tax my dominions. And then he very anachronistically claims that he, as the king, is the supreme head of both church and state. Uh, this is something, of course, that Henry VIII will, will claim. And that, well, that's uh, foreshadowing what's going to come. When we come back from break, we'll finish that and then talk about what Shakespeare was trying to say to England at the time of this play, a lesson that resounds through history. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hilltale Dialogue continues after this. You're in the middle of a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway. I am joined by Professor Patrick Timmis, president of Hilltale College, Larry Arn. Together, the Hilltale Dialogue this week is the first of those on the history plays brought to our attention in the book by uh, 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 Glenn Elmer's The Soul of Politics. Harry Jaffa loved the history plays, and so we're going to love on the history plays, beginning with King John. And as Professor Timmis was just telling us, the Pope gets involved and everything goes to hell. Uh, so how do they resolve it in the, in the, uh, in the play, Patrick? Yeah, so in uh, some of Shakespeare's sources, John Fox, uh, John Bale, these very fiercely Calvinist uh, chroniclers of English history, you know, John becomes this great hero, this great kind of proto-Protestant hero who leads a rebellion, you know, who, who, who loots the monasteries, much like Henry VIII uh, will do, and stands up for the right of the English church. Shakespeare's John uh, is a lot more complicated, and, and it's frankly a weaker figure. Uh, a- after declaring uh, his independence from Rome, and trying to draw Philip of France along with him, trying to, to uh, keep this new alliance he has with Philip of France, uh, Pandolf uh, succeeds in severing the alliance, and he blows up the winds of war uh, against England. John is unable to mount uh, a strong defense of the island largely because he gives in to the temptation, um, and, and, and we see him struggling against temptation. He's not simply, you know, kind of cold evil, but, but he gives in to the temptation to hint to one of his followers that he would like Arthur to be put out of the way, to be assassinated. And when his great nobles get wind of this, um, they, they leave him and actually go over to the side of the French. Um, Arthur is initially spared, uh, and, and John will learn to repent of, of calling for Arthur's assassination. Uh, but then Arthur flees, fearing you know, further reprisals, uh, and, and dies in an accident as he's trying to flee. And, and at this point, John really starts to lose control, actually lose control of, of himself. Uh, and, and there's a sense that he, he's falling apart, becomes more and more reliant on... His, his illegitimate nephew, uh, Richard Plantagenet, who, who we learn is a bastard son of, uh, of the Lionheart, and who emerges as this great leader and, and kind of the leader that England needs. He has a moral compass, although it's a little bit jaded. Um, he's clever. He's funny. Um, but most of all, he's strong. 
and and he's able to to rally the forces of England despite the 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 treachery or the you know or the rejection of John. However, one would want to look at uh, what the great nobles do. Um, they, they themselves are torn about it. They feel that they're betraying their kingdom to save their kingdom. Um, uh, the bastard Plantagenet is able to rally the English forces and basically fight France to a draw. Now, um, now what's fascinating about this is that it's being written after the Reformation. It's being written that's right. uh, in the reign of, of well, who's, who's on the throne at this point? 1587? Is it, is it Elizabeth? Elizabeth. Yeah, okay, it's always yeah, Elizabeth. Sorry, it's, Elizabeth. it's always, always Elizabeth. So, so Dr. Arndt, what do you take away from the, He's writing, it's kind of perilous to write about this stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and, and he, he's navigating through, and wonderfully, in my opinion, through, uh, through the, the politics of the day, and people are getting beheaded for going wrong in those politics. And Shakespeare is transcendently uh, adroit. He, first of all, I, I think that Shakespeare is on the side of the polity of England, and it is beset with many troubles, those external threats, but then a second trouble comes up in this play, and that is, what is the source of political legitimacy? Uh, you know, you, you have a nation, Lincoln says, every nation has a central idea from which all its minor thoughts radiate. Well, that's just Aristotle put into Lincoln language. And that's right. So is it the blessing of the Pope? Is it heredity? Because if it's heredity, that gets complicated. Uh, Philip is a bastard. Here's my favorite speech in this play. I can remember it like yesterday from 20 years ago, 21 years ago. King Philip says to Constance, the mother of the, of the deceased Arthur, you are as fond of grief as of your child. She replies, grief fills up the room of my absent child, lies in his bed, walks up and down with me, puts on his pretty looks, repeats his words, remembers me of all his gracious parts, stuff out his vacant garments with his form. Then have I reason to be fond of grief. See, that means... Wow. See, that's just... Wouldn't you, know, you love to have a career in which you could write one paragraph like that? Yeah, and he, you know, Shakespeare, dang, he just kept doing it. Oh, you know? just, oh my gosh! <laughs> and see, it, it encapsulates, among other things, the problem of hereditary rule. Constance is contending for her son to be the king because he's her son. Right? And other women have sons, too. And they want their sons to be king. And so, so it's, you know, or daughters, you know, it's a great joke about Henry VIII that's, that's also not a joke, that he tore the kingdom to shreds because Eleanor, uh, uh, Catherine of Aragon, his Spanish wife, was unable to give him a son. Yep. And only a son could rule the unruly England where legitimacy is murky. Except that mm-hmm. she did give him a son, and his name was Elizabeth. Yes. <laughs> See, the, the most successful of all the English monarchs. And she's soon to be at the time of this play. And, no, and, and that provides a solution to the problem. But, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, when, when political legitimacy is in doubt, 
it's just war and pestilence. Uh, uh, I caution our listeners that today, political legitimacy is in doubt. What is the proper title to rule? And that's explained in the Declaration of Independence, but that document is now contested into something it's not meant to be. And it, and it, it yields a rule of the vanguard, the experts, the ruling class. So we're seeing a thing like this, and it's messy when it, get, when it, when it works out. And Where it is political out. legitimacy? That, that, well, it's an interesting historical play to begin with. I'll go back to you, Professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it dangerous for Shakespeare written this? Um, yes. It's always dangerous for Renaissance uh, playwright to meddle in uh, in politics, and uh, Dr. Ron's absolutely right. You do, uh, have, you know, Ben Johnson is imprisoned and nearly beheaded uh, for getting on the wrong side of this. But I think Shakespeare's, I think his closing lines um, are, are exactly what Elizabeth wants to hear, and, and what most Englishmen want to hear when he says, "This England never did, nor never shall lie at the proud foot of a conqueror, but when it first did help to wound." itself. And Elizabeth is marvelous at finding a way to, at once, uh, hold church and state together underneath her uh, united and uniting rule without actually claiming uh, supreme headship uh, in the same way that her father did, in this kind of quasi-priestly way that her father did. Uh, She claims instead to be a, a governor, a caretaker on behalf of God, um, but but the message is always unity, and in fact, this is why she will never marry. She insists, "I am married to England." And yeah, they, now, now we'll come back and we'll have one more segment on this. But but, Doctor, we have a minute. Ought this play to be performed now, given oh, yeah. what it's about? Uh, we just had a production of uh, Henry V uh, by our tower players by the drama department, and. Uh, I just urged Chris Matsos, who teaches there and who's very congenial for this advice, we should go through all the history plays. Uh, and and this one is, uh, I, I haven't seen all of the history plays performed, uh, but this is one of my favorites. And, of course, there's the famous Henry V, the most famous of them. And this is, it lays the ground for that. That's the point. Well, and, and we'll come back. We're going to talk about the cycle ahead, and I'm going to get Patrick to comment on the whole before we go to the specifics after Thanksgiving. Don't go anywhere, America. I will be right back. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and visiting assistant professor of English, Patrick Timmis, is with us. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at iTunes. If you just type in Hillsdale Dialogues iTunes, you'll get all 414 of them. Don't go anywhere. Except over to the Salem News Channel app, which is available in the App Store on your iPhone, whether it's an iPhone or a Google Android, whatever it is, you can get the Salem News Channel app. Why not watch the Hillsdale Dialogue instead of just listen to it. Also, if you are really hooked on this, all of the Hillsdale Dialogues, dating back 10 years, are all collected in the order in which they appeared uh, at uh, iTunes Hillsdale Dialogues. That's all you have to do on Google, and, and up it will come. And then you will have enough listening for years and years of exercise. We've been working at this a long time to make you smart and make you smarter when you are already smart. That's iTunes Hillsdale Dialogues. This show. is the Hugh Hewitt Show.
Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue. I am talking with uh, Assistant Professor of English Patrick Timmis and President of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arn, uh, about King John, the first of Shakespeare's history plays. Steve Smith sent me a note, Patrick, saying, well, there's the first tetralogy, the Henry VI plays leading to civil war, the tyranny mm-hmm. of Richard III and Shakespeare. Then there's the second tetralogy, Richard II, Henry IV, one, mm-hmm. two, Henry V. And then there's King John, Henry VIII, and Sir Thomas More. Now, mm-hmm. look, how do you teach them? Do you teach them in order? Do you teach them in the order they were written? What do you do? Yeah, and well, teaching them in the order that they're written is a problem, uh, simply because even that is a question and a kind of constant scholarly uh, debate. I would, I think, probably uh, the easiest way to do it would actually be to go e- chronologically, historically. Uh, if you're going to do all of them, I mean, you know, and that would be an entire course, right, on the history of plays. Uh, typically, you'll see maybe the the second tetralogy, which is chronologically the first, Richard the Second, Henry the Fourth, Parts One and Two, Henry the Fifth, and then maybe uh, you'll do Richard the Third. Uh, Henry the Sixth uh, pretty much never performed. Uh, except in abridged forms where the three parts are shrunk down to two. I think most notably the uh, the Hollow Crown series a couple of years ago did a really great job uh, with that, did both tetralogies. Um, and then uh, King John, um, before I forget you, I did want to mention the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in Ontario in 2015. Uh, did a great performance of King John, and that uh, they did record it. It's a, it's a very high-quality DVD. And I think that is available uh, for purchase if anybody's dying to go out and watch this. Well, um, I'm, I'm waiting for Hillsdale to produce it. I may come north. But I, I, we, we cannot forget the, the Steelers fans that we're talking with here. And we have to lay it out chronolo- chronologically, I think, or they'll get really confused. Right. And the first one is King John. It's the first that occurred in history. Yeah. So button it up for us, both of you. Give us a takeaway. What is the takeaway from King John, Patrick Timmis? I think uh, Plantagenet gives us that uh, in his closing line, that naught shall make us rue if England to itself do rest but true. And that means that the, the, the church needs to be respectful of and loyal to the monarch. The people need to be respectful of and loyal to the monarch. But the monarch must also preserve, her, in this case her, Elizabeth, uh, her integrity. Like not give in to temptation, not play um, you know, a power politics that puts her own interests uh, before those of the kingdom. And she is the most successful monarch in 50 years of stability, and, and she's beloved. The people believe that she has done that. Do we know if she and saw this play? That way. Do we know if she saw this? Uh, almost certainly. Uh, the majority of uh, Kingsman's plays, uh, at this point, the Lord Chamberlain's uh, plays were performed at court. And Dr. Arn, what's your takeaway from King John? In fact, I, you know, the Arn children are not representative of children, but what did they think of the play in Chicago? Oh, that was, you know, it, it, we, we remember it as the greatest thing. It was, uh, you know, we went to expensive places for longer, but just three days in Chicago was just awesome. And, and the play was the, well, the Rembrandt paintings were pretty good, too. So, yeah, we loved it. And if you, the reason, my opinion, to read them chronologically is that is the order in which the events they concern happened. And remember, this is a sort of a new form that 
Shakespeare has found the history play, and he he made it famous and innovated, right? Well, he chose to set his characters amidst actual events and actual characters, Mm -hmm. and that implies that he's trying to say something about them. And there are two great schools of thought about what he's trying to say. Uh, One is the Machiavellian school. He's just trying to get England to button up and get virtuous and and rigorous and courageous because uh, Machiavelli's Italy was not that. Right. And the the other is that uh, Shakespeare sees even beyond that, which probably Machiavelli did too, Shakespeare is exploring how we live together under law, which is the decisive way we live together, and how that can be good. And it's, you know, the history plays are messy, right? And then they don't go to some final triumph, right? Because even Elizabeth's 50 years were not succeeded by 50 more years. and, And that means that politics always has an element of tragedy in it. Well, I cannot I actually wait uh, looking forward to this. Uh, and Patrick, I hope you will come back and grace us and as as necessary. I, I don't know if anyone has yeah, taught a course. Th- have you taught a course yet on the history plays? I've not. I'd love to. Yeah, that's uh, there you go. Dr. Orange just signed you up for a new course. There you go. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Larry Arn, uh, Assistant Professor Patrick Timmis. Thanks to you both. The Hillsdale Dialogue will roll along again next Thursday. Three hours of Hillsdale Dialogues on the founding, all with Dr. Arn and me. Next Friday, three hours on the American story with other great Hillsdaleans and, I don't know if that's a term or not, and me and Dr. Arn. So do not miss next Thursday and Friday as you go about your Thanksgiving shopping. Uh, You might overdose on Hillsdale, but that's actually not possible. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. All of the dialogues, all 415 of them now, are available at the Hillsdale Dialogues on iTunes. Go download them and get smart, America. We need you to be smart. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Harley. Thank you, Dwayne. I'll talk to you Monday on the next Do Good Show. absolutely positively need the truth this is where you turn this is the hugh hewitt show